Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Amanda Conkle, who is one of the editors of Perspectives on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend Nuanced Post-Network Television that she put together with Charles Burnett. Um, Amanda, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you start out by talking a little bit about how this collection came about and came to be? Yeah. Um, so Charles and I were both on a conference panel for consoling passions. Um, and we were just both, I think, really enthusiastic fans of the show. And when we presented our work at that conference, we found lots of enthusiastic audience members who wanted to talk about the show and wanted to keep thinking about it. Um, and that experience really encouraged us to think about putting together a collection of essays on the show because so many people were really excited about it. Um, so before we get into this collection and really thinking about it, could you, for um, the, for listeners who have not watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or don't know much about it, can you sort of give us an overview of, about what Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, about the show and the premise and how it sort of came to be? Yeah, um, it's a hard show to summarize, I think. Um Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was on the CW network from 2015 to 2019. Um, The creators, Rebecca Bloom and Eileen Brush McKenna, um, describe it as a dark comedy romantic musical. Um, And it really does all of those things. Um, I was initially drawn to it because the musical numbers are so funny um, and stand alone really well on their own. So sometimes if you're in a bad mood at work, you can like pull up a couple musical numbers from the show on YouTube and kind of um, help switch your mood around a little bit. Um, and the show itself, of course, it's a it's an integrated musical. Um, the numbers are largely motivated by the protagonists. Um, Rebecca Bunch, who is played by Rachel Bloom, um, by her um, sort of mental state, right? So the songs are something that she imagines as a way to process and cope with things that are happening in her life. Um, And the premise is that she was about to get this big promotion as a New York lawyer and a fortuitous advertisement for butter asked, when was the last time you were truly happy? And she thought about being at a musical theater summer camp 
with her high school boyfriend who she happened to see on the streets of New York. And so she quit her job and followed him to West Covina, California, although she says that's not why she's there. But it's obvious that that is why she's there. Um, And so she encounters all of these um, major life changes. And over the arc of the four seasons of the show, um, learns a lot about herself um, in order to form healthy relationships with others, not necessarily romantic relationships only. So the title is a little... Um, misleading, I think, in a lot of ways, but also kind of a critical commentary on how people think about women. And and the the book is divided into sort of four sections. And and the first sort of to set up that first part um, before talking about that a little, can you sort of um, situate it in that larger sort of television network, like, how, you, you know, you talk about this in the intro a little bit about how it got even on to network TV, um, which yeah. some, for some people, it's like, how did this even happen? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the show was originally pitched to Showtime um, and they weren't interested in it. So then the creators were thinking, how can we get this to network TV? Um, And the CW at this time is really thinking about diversifying their audience. Um, You know, the CW is kind of known for those superhero series um, and skewed towards a male audience. So at the same time, um, Jane the Virgin had captured some of that female audience. And so they were really going for that audience. So they picked up the show, um, which was originally planned as 30 minutes, but then needed to be expanded into 45 minutes. And of course, some of the content um, that is allowable is different for a network broadcast show than a premium cable show. Um, But the show was also able to push some boundaries with content, um, especially like talking about things like um, women's periods or orgasms, um, things that we wouldn't typically see covered on network TV. They found ways to um, represent and challenge that a little bit differently. So the the first part, so like I said, this is in four parts. So the first part, these chapters really look at sort of the critics, the genre the, of the show, and, and how this sort of fits into quality television. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, those chapters and how, you know, maybe starting because chapter one sort of starts with that critical reception um, that this show, um, like you've alluded to and talked about, is one that... Um, people really love, but also the sort of a critical darling. Mm-hmm. At, right. So can you um, talk about some of those issues and things that you that were covered in those first chapters? Yeah. Um, so this show comes out during um, what has been called peak TV, right? And that's sort of a double edge term. So uh, initially, when the term was coined, it meant like, there's too much TV, we're going to have to have less TV. Um, But it's sort of been 
um, received differently, right? As thinking is like, this is the prime moment for really innovative, really interesting TV. Um, because I mean, there is too much TV, right? So any TV that comes out needs to differentiate itself to attract an audience. Um, so the first chapter by David Scott Different, um, speaks to that, critical reception and how so many television critics um, kind of talked about how they were a little bit crazy for the show, right? And started to um, deconstruct the term um, crazy in a way kind of similar to how the show does. Um, And thinking about fandom in those terms and how television critics and academics really can write about things that they are fans of um, and that they might feel a little bit crazy about themselves, right? Um, And there are so many things about the show, I think that like intellectually you would think this can't work, right? There's this whole history of um, failed musical TV Um, And so kind of all the pieces have to align to get the audience to buy into the premise and um, come along with it. And I think because the show provided so much commentary on common tropes about women, about relationships, about mental health, in that package of these really catchy songs, while also alluding to classical musicals for that audience that um, likes to feel, you know, as part of the in-group for thinking about musicals. Um, It kind of was able to tick all of those boxes that would lead it to be a kind of critical darling that could set itself apart in that peak TV context. Right. And then um, sort of thinking about the different television markets um, and that sort of and also I guess it also fits in with the um, the post complex television and what that means that's sort of addressed in some of those chapters in that first part. Yeah. So thinking about, um, you know, the ways that television narrative has changed um, in recent years because viewing practices have changed, right? I find myself frustrated now when I have to wait for another episode to to come out. I'm like, I just want to know what happens next. Why do I have to wait for this episode? Um, And so that kind of um, viewer who's really immersed in a viewing experience leads to changes in television narrative. Now, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend dropped one episode at a time, right, on broadcast TV, although a lot of the audience um, consists of repeat viewers on streaming services um, who have watched the show initially, maybe on TV, and then watched it again. There's still conversation among fans who are watching the show, you know, for the fourth, fifth, dozenth time. Um, and so the the narrative, the way that it's structured in post-complex TV has things like, you know, Easter eggs or um, 
echoes of earlier storylines or self-reflexive narrative that rewards repeat viewing, right? That asks viewers to watch it again to see if they can catch something else or some other connection that they might not have noticed before. Another thing um, that is, I think, important in thinking about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is that there was also a tour, right? Yes. Um, so can you talk uh, a little bit about how that plays out in some of um, what you're talking about here with that um, post-complex television and and the creation of the show? Yeah. Um, so the creators... Um, had a limited run tour, and I think they would have done more shows um, except for COVID influencing um, live shows. But the creators did a tour, and there's an also a tour episode at the conclusion of the series that shows the performers performing um, some of the major numbers from the show live. Um, and so the show really has this expansive ability and ability to tap into audiences in different places. So like I was talking about earlier, the YouTube numbers um, can kind of stand alone. Those have millions of hits, some of them. Um, and Chelsea McCracken's chapter talks about that in more detail. Um, but we have that kind of audience that can be tapped into. And then we have the live musical theater audience that can be tapped into as well as these expansive texts related to the show. Um, and it lends itself to cosplay. Lots of people, um, lots of fans are looking for, you know, dresses that might resemble things that Rebecca wears on the show. Um, and it's sort of an easy costume because you can buy a cute dress and then like carry around a giant pretzel, which is one of the key themes of the show um, throughout the series and easily kind of have a costume um, put together and also be able to express your fandom at the same time. So um, one of the things that this is helpful maybe helpful in thinking about the show or important is is that it is a four season arc and mm -hmm. um so when you move into and it, and it comes throughout but the part two the sort of queering television is part two in those chapters um especially like the first one really gets into some of those overarching themes um in the different seasons um so can you talk maybe a little bit about the sort of how those seasons work and, and some of those overarching themes that happen um, in those four seasons? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can remember exactly um, how they break down. I know there's some quote in the book somewhere that you might have to find on your own as readers <laughs> um, from the creators about how they envisioned the four seasons working. Um, but because the CW was willing to allow a low rated but critical darling award winning show to continue to just finish out its narrative, it really was conceived as a contained narrative unit, right? So the first season um, addresses kind of the 
the more crazy aspect, I guess, of things that someone would do for love um, and how uh, an individual might feel like their self-worth is tied to um, romance of um, some sort. And then um, in the second and third seasons, I feel like um, there's more of a, a sense of Rebecca starting to learn who she is separate from being in a romantic relationship. And at the same time, um, especially in the third season, she's dealing with mental health diagnoses um, and thinking about what the path of living with um, a mental health diagnosis is for people, right? Not that, and coming to terms with the idea that she's not just going to get a cure, but that it's something that she's going to have to work with and learn from and develop. Um, And then the fourth season um, has this tidy, I won't say tidy, that's probably not accurate, Um, but a nice kind of way of wrapping up um, Rebecca figuring out what music means to her, how she has used it as a coping mechanism, and how maybe having this artistic release is part of her identity that she should embrace um, and that she doesn't have to be in a romantic relationship to have self-worth. And along the way, we see lots of emphasis also on um, women's friendships with each other that also doesn't have to do with romantic relationships, right? That's sort of how a lot of the women meet each other. um, But there are also ways that they can form their friendships and maintain their friendships um, without that kind of competition um, for men, just have genuine connection with each other. Right. And so that leads into, too, one of the um, chapters in that sort of section on queering television talks about the homosocial relationships throughout um, the series. And so can you talk a little bit about that, um, some of those relationships and the ways in which the series approaches um, that is, that those friendships and um, sort of thinking about relationships in, in these sort of tri- like I think they were homosocial triangles. Does that sound right? Right, like that idea. <laughs> Yeah, so one of the ways that um, Sedgwick's idea of homosocial triangles has been thought of typically is, um, you know, a triangle with two men forming their bond by competing for a woman. Um, The way that the author of that chapter... um, trying to figure out which author that is, um, talks about, uh, Hazel McKenzie talks about those homosocial triangles in this series is that we often have um, two women as well forming a bond, maybe initially starting with um, the kind of apex of a common, a man in common, 
But then moving beyond that and easily being like, oh, you can have him or neither one of us wants him, right? And then forming a stronger bond outside of that homosocial triangle. And so it really um, informs relationships between men and between women in the show. But also the show depicts a lot of how the... um, how the characters are able to form close bonds outside of those triangles. Right. And the show also, so in those chapters in that um, part, talk a little bit about thinking about disability theory um, and also looking at the um, narratives, bisexual narratives. And so how do you see that kind of playing out as well in the show, those different ideas of um, thinking about the series in those ways? Yeah. um, So in that section where we're thinking about queering television, um, there are kind of two directions to take that, right? One is thinking about it um, in kind of a straightforward way um, in terms of sexuality. Um, And so Kathleen Taylor Coleman's chapter talks about the character of Daryl Whitefeather, who is um, Rebecca's boss. And in one of the later seasons, he decides that he's bi. Um, or comes out as bi. And what is um, unique about how the show addresses it that um, Kathleen situates in um, television, in the context of television history, is that he's not bi like on the way to just being gay or on the way to just being straight, right? And bi is established as a separate sexual identity, right? And so um, he has a long-term relationship with a male character um, and then also has relationships with women in the show. Um, And he is an older man who comes to this realization. Um, And one of the things that came out of that is that many um, people who identified as bi felt that they had a character who was really celebrating that identity and um, acknowledging that it's not one or the other, right? That it really is bi. Um, and so the, the show provides that richer opportunity. You know, it might seem like it's sort of framed um around heterosexual romance because it's called crazy ex-girlfriend, right? But there's opportunities for thinking about other sexual identities as well. Um, The other way that um, the show um, queers television, as we've talked about homosocial triangles already, um, is the idea of um, cripping uh, narrative and narrative time, right? Um, and this is kind of um, connected to both sexuality studies and disability studies, right? The idea that um, because someone with a different sexual identity might take a different path um, to 
figuring out who they are or establishing relationships. And because someone with a mental or a physical um, health concern might also take a different path than the quote unquote norm um, for you know, what we're expected to, to do once we hit adulthood, get a, get a good job, buy a house, have kids, right? Um, get married, all of that stuff. The show really calls our attention to the ways that everyone is kind of on their own timeline, right? And those expectations are just um, really the product of discourse and not the product of how people actually live their lives and and, um, make that journey. So Caitlin Ray's chapter um, calls our attention to the ways that the narrative um, kind of plays with the ways that time can slow down or stop or even seem to reverse Um, for people who are dealing with a certain kind of hardship and how they might, um, you know, come to recognize that their path is their path and they don't have to follow what other people are doing, what their friends are doing, and that their friends are are still likely to accept, right, that they are on a different place in their journey um, and that you could still be friends with people who are on on different paths. So one of the things that I um, really loved about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was how it talks about mental illness and mental health and um, trauma. And so part three really gets at that. Those chapters really get at how they address um, so so that part is trauma, vulnerability and mental illness. Mm -hmm. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? the role of mental illness uh, with it, right? Mental illness's place and role in the, in the series. And then how um, some of these uh, chapters sort of think about that and play that out. Yeah. Um, So the series, you know, with the premise, crazy ex-girlfriend, I think it was a little off-putting to people initially, but it really is thinking about like, what kinds of actual illnesses or traumas might cause people to act in ways that others would call crazy, right? And then, like, how do we help those people um, who are doing things that might seem extreme, right? At one point, um, I think it's in the second season, um, after her fiance has left her at the altar, um, Rebecca hires, thinks about hiring a hitman, but also sends poop in a box to him, right? So not like typical breakup behavior, although maybe things that we um, <laughs> would think about doing and stop ourselves before we do it, right? Um, but the show then really starts to explore what are the underlying causes for these behaviors? Um, Rebecca becomes very depressed and eventually suicidal, right? And so then um, the show interrogates what kind of support she needs um, and how she can recover 
right from that place that um, being suicidal doesn't have to be the end for her. In fact, it can kind of be a beginning. And after that point, um, the series really um, takes a turning point, right, and starts to think about um, diagnosis and the path to recovery. Um, so Lauren uh, Balmeron's chapter um, talks a lot about the audience experience of watching a series that really engages with mental health, not as like a one-off, like special episode kind of thing, but as um, kind of an underlying thread, right, throughout everything that's happened and that kind of, how that kind of deep engagement um, with mental health can be a very cathartic experience for viewers. Um, many viewers have said, you know, they talk to their therapists about um, what they're seeing in the show. They felt represented. Um, uh, the song Antidepressants are no big deal, for example, um, kind of valorizes, you know, how many people use antidepressants as a way to be able to um, cope, right, with their mental health issues and that you wouldn't, there's, there shouldn't be a stigma about it because these, it's like everyone and they can still tap dance in the street, right? Um, and so it's really um, kind of a communal, um, a community bonding experience too, to have that representation. Um, and uh, Margaret Talley's chapter then kind of connects that to the possibility of destigmatizing um, mental illness in TV, right? Often um, representations of mental illness are people who are criminals or um, suspected of things or people who, um, you know, ruin other people's lives um, or that kind of like clever anti-hero figure um, who has terrible interpersonal relationships, right, but can solve um, complex medical diagnoses or something like that, right? <laughs> Hypothetically, right? <laughs> if there was a show like that. Um, so this show, I think, you know, for a lot of people um, is able to contribute to that kind of destigmatizing of mental illness to represent it as just another way of being human um, and another um, kind of experience that people have, but not something that makes someone a threat to society um, or a genius, right? Um, but just a, a thing that happens. And, and there's some, uh, also that uh, I think there's another chapter in that section that also kind of talks about the vulnerability, right? Like being mm -hmm. emotionally vulnerable and really thinking and talking about and talking through that, which is another, um, which is another thing that these writers did really well, right? And the show did mm -hmm. really well. And so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how, um, like, using that musical format helps with mm. like, you know, not only that, but some of these, right. Like some of the other issues with mental health and, um, you know, mental illness, what using a musical allows, <laughs> you know, that to happen. Yeah. Um, Stephanie Salerno's chapter 
talks about emotional vulnerability, um, and especially for many of the male characters, right? So um, although the show is kind of centered around Rebecca, um, there it's an ensemble cast, and we really get a look at a lot of other characters um, and their experiences too, right? So how um, people who seem very successful and high-powered might be dealing with family trauma um, that has impacted the way that they can have relationships, right? Um, and I think that's probably something that's um, a pretty familiar experience to a lot of us, right? Our past impact our present. So the show then um, through um, numbers that are a little bit silly at times, um, something like fit hot guys have problems too, right? But then these um, fit hot guys, <laughs> right, get to get up and sing um, about their emotions um, and how their past traumas have impacted them. Um, and really, you know, kind of calling attention to um, the idea that there's always something else that people are dealing with, right? No matter how perfect their lives seem to be um, on the outside, I think we're all pretty good at, at self-presentation in this age of social media, but um, to kind of remind us that everybody has things that they're dealing with and to allow, um, especially the character Nathaniel um, over the course of the last couple of seasons really taps into his own emotions and kind of goes through a parallel journey to what Rebecca is going through um, to learn to be vulnerable, to actually heal from his past traumas and to, to discover himself um, and his own interests along the way. Um, and the show presents that as, you know, having this experience alongside someone else who is open about their experience and willing to be vulnerable then can help kind of multiple um, people heal. The last chapter in that section um, talks about um, something kind of similar. Christine Previs talks about failure um, and failed families um, and the possibility of forming more stable found families, right? That biology doesn't have to be destiny, right? That we can um, perhaps make connections with people whose experiences are more similar to ours um, or who are going through similar experiences, have similar values, and um, form our own kinds of families. And so we see Rebecca has a very um, difficult relationship with her mother. Nathaniel has a very difficult relationship with his father um, and his mother, although she's no longer in the picture. And Rebecca has a difficult relationship with her father, who is mostly not in the picture either. Um, but that doesn't mean they give up on those close, vulnerable commitments to other people. It just means that those commitments aren't driven by biology. Um, they're driven by choice. 
And and so the the book wraps up with chapters that that fourth part looking at new feminisms, right? So another big another really important part of this show was uh, how it addressed feminism, the way in which feminism sort of came through. And so can you talk uh, a bit about that, um, feminisms within the show and, and how these chapters really look at um, how that plays out? Yes. Um, one of, I mean, one of my first like entry points to the show um the the first season songs, the sexy getting ready song and put yourself first in a sexy way, which I still use every time I teach post-feminism because it's like post-feminism in three minutes. Here you go. <laughs> it's such a good um, kind of condensed um, entry point that then you can't forget um, after you've seen it. Um, so the show really... Um, is very knowing and self-conscious about its engagement with feminism, um, as many people are today, right? People know about second wave feminism. People know the buzzwords of that. Um, and I think people are also starting to kind of um, have internalized some of the aspects of post-feminism, even though they might not um, know that that's what it's called from something like Sex in the City, right? Girl power and that stuff. And then... Um, I think people have also started to internalize kind of the contradictions of post-feminism and show the, sh the show comments on that kind of confusing, like, what does it mean to be a feminist? Um, so many of students today, I think, are like, well, I'm not a feminist, but, or, well, feminism means this, right? Um, feminism means choice. Um, and so the show kind of engages with like, do we know what feminism is? How has this history informed feminism? Um, what's the relationship of sexiness and self-presentation um, to feminism? And how might the show be kind of deconstructing um, feminist discourse. Um, so B.B. Berger and Carol Van Ruyen write a chapter that um, looks specifically at put yourself first and situates that in a meta-modernist context as sort of like wanting to be um, critical of something like post-feminist discourse, but also wanting to be like um, sincere, right? Wanting to have like feelings about things and have some kind of authentic connection and how do you put together that kind of intellectual um, and emotional response to um, being a feminist or trying to be um, a feminist. Um, Marija Lagalite talks about how technology is used to help form um, some of those female relationships, but how ultimately those relationships need to take place outside of the mediating technology um, in order to really be supportive, foundational relationships for the women um, who have them. And um, Christy Cook's chapter tells us um, or interrogates 
the ways that women's hunger um, has been represented in recent years, um, both in terms of hunger for food, but also in terms of sexual desire. And I think kind of underlying that um, desire for agency and authority um, and power in their own lives. And in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, we see women who have desires and who insist on their desires being recognized. Um, and so it's a really um, kind of powerful way, I think, to confront that kind of post-feminist discourse that might um, say, you know, put yourself first for him, right? And then that questioning of like, wouldn't that be putting myself second? Um the, the show and like confronts that by Rebecca being like, I'm going to eat. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this food. I'm going to insist on my own sexual satisfaction, um, despite what society tells me, you know, quote unquote, good girls would do. So you have this collection about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, I'm going to ask, well, I have a couple questions, but I'm going to ask you one. You might have an answer to, or you might not. You might be like, okay. don't ask me that. Well, I'm just wondering. So, right, the show has ended. It was, mm -hmm. what, 2015 to 19, yep. right? Yep. Um, what do you think, you know, the impact, do you have an idea or you have thoughts on how this is going to impact or has impacted, like, how we think about um, television and network television? Um, and how that plays out. I mean, I think there's like, on one hand, there's the industrial context and kind of thinking about um, how network television engages with streaming services. And I think um, the CW was one of the first networks to say, well, we're going to also release our, our, release our shows um, on streaming services because we recognize that there's two audiences, right? And that everybody is going to tune in um, at a particular time for a lot of uh, um, its run. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was a Friday night show, which is not the prime spot, right? But audiences still wanted to watch. Um, so they knew to kind of, we've got to have a double prong strategy here, right? And now I think we're seeing more and more networks um, think about how they engage with streaming um, of their shows, right? Um, having deals with Hulu or Netflix or creating their own services. Um, so there's the industrial piece that I think this shows like, this is a good example of, how a show um, can move between those two kind of distribution models and also how like ratings, the kind of Nielsen ratings might not be indicative of who an audience is anymore, right? Um, and that um, there's still value um, in pursuing um, a lower rated show. Now, the fact that it won Emmys and also had that critical acclaim um, contributed to that as well. Um, but I think there's also the piece um, that is still kind of being explored um, that this show contributes to related to um, kind of representation and representation of, you know, um, all kinds of 
different populations, right? That kind of young people, um, 20, I guess they're supposed to be 20, maybe like late 20s, um, people who are figuring out, you know, who they are, how to navigate careers and relationships and all of those things, um, and how that can be represented in a way that doesn't make them look like horrible people, um, right? I think there's like that that um, trend in representation. Um, uh, Jory Lagerway and Ty- Taylor Nygaard wrote uh, a book about that called Horrible White People Shows, right? And I think they have a lot of um, evidence, right, of these shows that represent people in this age group as terrible people who are only self-centered. And while there are aspects of that in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, as Rebecca and some of the other characters are kind of learning about their place in the world, there's also lots of other aspects, right, where they are representing mental illness, representing um, paths to adulthood that don't involve heterosexual romance or don't only rely on heterosexual romance. Um, Paths that um, value uh, interpersonal connection and vulnerability, right, over kind of self-presentation. And so I think it's part of this ongoing effort to think about representation um, and think about how people's lives have changed right, pretty rapidly over the past, you know, I mean, I would say even 20 years, right? Growing up um, and becoming adult is very different now than it was then. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think these representations contribute to that diversity of experiences. And so um, my last two questions have to sort of do with, well, the first is the book, it just came out. It is Mm -hmm. kind of like, what is the, and so I know we're still in the time of COVID. So are there Mm -hmm. any things like you're doing to promote the book or the release and um, it just came out. Uh, let's see. I think I got my copy like two weeks ago. Um, and yeah, we're still, uh, dealing with COVID people are scattered everywhere. Um, so I don't know of anything specific that's planned for promotion as we sort of come back out of this. Um, I think everyone is a little tired and overrun, right. With all the extra, um, responsibilities related to, to COVID. Um, but I do know that the crazy ex-girlfriend, um, fan groups are still very active and I've talked to, to, um, a lot of them about the book coming out. Um, I asked the press to send one to Rachel Bloom, but I don't know if they did or not. So I sort of feel like I might need to <laughs> follow up on that. <laughs> get to get it to her somehow, right? Yeah. <laughs> and my last question is always, um, and, and it might be that this is so new for you that you're just taking a break, but if there's anything new you're working on or, or that you want to sort of talk about, like what's on the horizon. <laughs> um, I feel like I have a lot of projects that are half-baked or maybe not even like maybe a bunch of ingredients on the counter <laughs> is the stage that we're at. 
um, right now. Um, I have um, been looking at um, some things that aren't related to this project at all, really, um, like uh, some work that I've been doing with the Hollywood Production Code. Um, but related to this project, um, I've been thinking about the uh, adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale and um, really thinking about, you know, how the novel and then the 1990s film and then the serial um, television series really comment on different responses to feminism at different moments um, in cultural history in very different ways. Um, and so... I feel like that project could kind of expand infinitely, um, but I'm hoping to uh, get something uh, smaller scale, I think, than a book, but something um, out on that soon. Well, I mean, it's been really great talking with you about this. And um, this is Amanda Conkle, who, along with Charles Burnett, um, put together uh, perspectives on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Nuance Post Network Television. Um, Amanda, thanks for talking with me for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you for this conversation. And thanks to the listeners. 